It is forbidden to forbid. This was one of the many utopian slogans painted on the walls of Paris during May 1968, a turning point in French history. May 1968 saw one of the largest political demonstrations in modern European history. Idealists rubbed shoulders with ignorant proles. Wildcat strikers took over their factories. Food production almost ceased. The government stopped functioning. Governmental leaders fled the country. Approximately 500,000 Frenchmen took to the streets in a mass protest slash riot. Primitive war, club versus fist, paving stone versus grenade, raged in the streets. At the same time, 800,000 French men and women marched against the protests. The truth is, most Frenchmen did not support the rioters slash protesters, nor did they actively support law and order. They sat at home like most men always do. They blinked at their television screens. Most did nothing. It's the minority who is almost always on the streets. Those without jobs, the poor, and the unemployable, the workers too, and the pampered children of one of the richest countries in the world. They played with fire, and it has to be said, in the case of France, they were not burned. The French had just spent hundreds of millions of francs fighting wars they had lost in Indochina and Algeria. Most of the fanatically patriotic Frenchmen had fallen in those wars or been disillusioned by the French people themselves. The hardcore gave all they had in the Algerian war, but it wasn't enough. Many had resentment against the French people who they felt had stabbed them in the back. My point is that after two failed wars, most of France wasn't ready for another civil war. We saw in Chile that left-wing disorder led to a right-wing dictatorship replete with murder without trial. We've seen the same thing in other countries, and I want everyone listening to the show to know that I prefer peace to war. War is a terrible thing. I've learned that even more after four years of running this show. War is not something to play with lightly. Please don't think I'm implying a threat. I want to be explicit. It is my desire that all countries can have peace without conflict and resolve their differences without violence. However, I just know that can't always happen. The peace or the wars of our children we build today. We can build our children bullets or we can build them prosperity. I sincerely want to build peace with anyone listening to this. I'm not lying and I'm not being sarcastic. Now, in May 1968, a new world dawned in the West, a world without standards. You've been living in it for a while now. What did the slogan say from Paris 1968? It is forbidden to forbid. The man who wrote that slogan can't see the other side of that coin. They don't understand utopian language can lead to concentration camps and Armenian massacres and bloody conflict. If nothing is forbidden, then who's to say it's wrong to machine gun protesters? The writers of the slogans in France were teaching their future prison wardens most dangerous ideas. Is it worth it? How long until the people you wrong in your revolution come back to bite you? Another slogan of May 1968 was enjoy without hindrance. You may enjoy your loot now, but General Pinochet may enjoy his tomorrow. You may enjoy your bonfire now, but Castro will enjoy his tomorrow. So don't build bonfires. Build communities. Don't build death. Build life. I want my children to have peace, and I want your children to have peace, and I mean it. I'm not just saying it. I can guarantee you our children and our widows and our old people will be glad we did. Now, who listening to this can say I'm wrong? Listen to the audio wave of reason caressing your eardrums. This is the sound of a free man, a man who loves peace. 
But now I gotta thank Charles for buying us around, and if you wanna buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. And now, the turning point of modern French history, the mass riot of May 1968. Jean-Pierre Le Goff called the May 1968 disorders the revolt of the spoiled children. And Le Goff's characterization is partly accurate, especially for the beginning phases of the disorders. It began with students. Who else does it always begin with, right? People who have really been oppressed all their working lives, except uh, they've never had working lives. Here's how Roger Price describes the significance of the riot in 1968. Quote, Suddenly, all manner of smoldering resentment surfaced against authoritarianism in the family as well as in government and in the workplace, against elitism in society and its manifestations in high school and universities, against overcrowded and inadequately resourced teaching facilities, against inequality, injustice, and the insecurity bred by rapid social change. End quote. It began with university students at the newly built University of Nanterre in the suburbs of Paris in May 1968, but its origins were years more distant. The origins of the discontent were across the Mediterranean Sea and the recently decolonized Algeria. Opposition to the war had helped organize a protest movement capable of mounting serious demonstrations, publishing books and magazines, and building informal networks. And when the war ended, the networks remained, they always do. The cadres simply moved from protesting the war in Algeria to protesting the family or Americanization or the price of a royale with cheese. The Algerian war helped radicalize young Frenchmen, nothing like being drafted to help you understand your true values. In 1962, the Algerian war came to an end and France entered a long peace, a peace which would last until May 68. It was during this time of peace that economic growth washed through French society, turning the nation into a consumer society. For the first time, millions of people can now afford luxury items like cars and televisions and college. A huge expansion of France's university system was taking place, and the new middle class was flooding into the system. By 1968, there were over 500,000 university students in France, twice as many as in Britain. But there was a problem. Three fourths of French students failed their courses and left school. The universities had a 75% failure rate. The universities were also horribly overcrowded, with 160,000 students in the University of Paris system alone, which was why, once they started demonstrating, student causes were able to attract such enormous numbers of marchers. But there was another problem with the French university system. It was a total autarky. There was no dialogue where students could be heard, the kind all of us Americans are so used to. The earnest 18-year-old undergrad sharing her feelings about the trials of not living up to the standards of beauty set by the media. The utterly uninformed opinions of hungover undergraduates. The always angry students screaming about social justice. None of these essential viewpoints were being shared in the French Academy, and the students were hopping mad about it. Mark Kurlansky explains, quote, Hidden within this bored, overstuffed, complacent society were a radicalized youth with a hopelessly old-fashioned leader, overpopulated universities, angry workers, a sudden consumerism enthralling some and sickening others, sharp differences between generations and perhaps even boredom itself that when put together 
could be and was explosive, end quote. And the heart of the explosion would take place in Paris's Latin Quarter. This was where 150,000 students were crammed together. Now, that's a lot of students. For instance, the University of Georgia has about 30,000. And the concentration of students cannot be overstated. One author said it was like a quarter of United States four-year universities were smashed together in just a few square miles. Now, these young students, filled with idealism, were ripe for the propaganda a few small left-wing extremist groups began propagating throughout the Latin Quarter. Really, it's quite amazing that these small groups of Maoists and Trotskyites were able to capture the imaginations of so many students, but they did it. The first rumblings of trouble came on March 22nd when a relatively small group of a few hundred extreme leftist students debated how they could show their opposition to the Vietnam War. Eventually, they decided to occupy the administration building of the University of Nanterre. Once inside the building, they set up a committee on student and worker struggles and class structures in the university system. Then they left before the police raided the building and performed autopsies on their skulls with billy clubs. They had used mass tactics to achieve a limited goal and they had gotten away with it. It was the start of the March 22nd movement, a movement led by Danny the Red, whose real name was Danny Combindi. Danny was the son of a prominent attorney, a wealthy man, but also a committed leftist. His family had been terribly persecuted by the Nazi regime, and this persecution made a tremendous impact on his life. How could it not? Danny viewed himself as an internationalist. His family had moved from country to country his entire life. He was raised from birth to be an extreme leftist. He had money to travel around the United States and Germany where he made contact with other leading student radicals. A little known fact, many, if not most, revolutionaries are wealthy. Vladimir Lenin, the famous radical who led the Russian Revolution, was the son of an aristocratic landowner, as was his beautiful revolutionary wife. He freely admitted he had a charmed childhood, drank milk he did not gather, and ate food he did not harvest. He lived in Paris on a monthly stipend from his mammy. Castro was the same way. His father owned a gigantic plantation town complex, complete with its own movie theater and grocery store. He went to the best segregated schools in Cuba. And when he expropriated his own family farm, his mother, who had sacrificed so much to gain the farm, met the revolutionaries at the door with her own rifle. She tried to gun them down, and if her last name hadn't been Castro, she might have been gunned down herself. As it was, Fidel had to come and mollify her as her life work was taken away from her. What was it Tolkien said? So you forsake your father and his kin, ill-gotten son. Here shall you fail of all your hopes, and here may you yet die the same death as I. End Tolkien quote. And Danny the Red made contact with other radicals in Paris. It was from one of these meetings at the famous Sorbonne University that the explosion started. Danny was about to be kicked out of school for his role in taking over the administrative buildings at Nanterre University. The students were also discussing the imminent threat of a right-wing attack. For weeks, an extreme right-wing student organization called Occident had been threatening to stop the agitation in the universities and personally remove Danny bodily from the country. He was not a citizen of France. But the police struck first, seeing an opportunity to arrest the ringleaders of unrest at a third of all the universities in Paris in one strike. The police invaded the Sorbonne 
on May 3rd. It was 4 o'clock p.m. By 4.30, all of the leftist student political leaders in Paris were sweating in police buses. The operation had gone like clockwork. But then the unexpected happened as it often does. News of the arrest spread throughout the students the way bees defend a hive and the students of Paris swarmed at the police officers who were dressed in full riot gear. The students attacked the police while chanting free our comrades, liberate no camarade. They repeated the phrase over and over again for a week. The police couldn't believe the response. Now many of these policemen were hardcore veterans of the internal Algerian war. They had stalked Algerian terrorists and their French sympathizers for years. It's true that the war ended over six years ago, but what's six years to a real working man? Six years is like a day to a careerist. They leaned into the students, pummeling them with batons, shooting them with tear gas canisters, exploding flashbangs all around them. And still, the hundreds of thousands of students surged into the streets, surrounding the police. In less than an hour, the protesters grew from a few hundred to a few thousand. And the students were faster and more daring than the police. They knew the area like the back of their hands and they often got away from the cops. But when the cops cornered a student, they taught him a lesson in pain. In the first two hours, people were getting their heads cracked open by truncheons. Hundreds were arrested and yet thousands more came to replace the arrested ones. The police drew their breath and resumed the beatings. Rocks hammered at the officers' limbs and bodies. And I don't care how much armor you have on, a rock hurtling at you from a five-story roof thrown at 60 miles per hour is going to at least wear you down, and the streets around the Sorbonne were cobblestone. You could easily pull them up and lob them at your friendly neighborhood policeman. And the students painted the slogan on the walls underneath the cobblestones, The Beach. Students began forming barricades. Traffic snarled to a stop. Disruption began. Commerce in the Latin Quarter ceased. The fighting went on into the night. Then the government made a number of serious blunders. They released hundreds of hardcore demonstrators they had arrested that same day. Now, I don't want to overstress this. They kept some in jail, but the majority were let loose and were back on the front lines the next afternoon. And on the night of May 3rd, a Friday, the student unions were already calling on a nationwide strike for students. By Saturday night, the newly released leaders of the extreme left issued an ultimatum for three things. First, the reopening of Sorbonne University it had been closed. Second, the release of all arrested demonstrators, whether students or not, whether foreigners or not. And third, the police force must be withdrawn from the Latin Quarter. This is the demand that makes the first two ultimatums possible. Power is the capacity to nullify the enemy. Without the cops, the state had no power to hinder the students. And the leftist students were smart. They kept their demands broad so as to attract the maximum number of fellow students. They weren't calling for a revolution. They were almost asking for a return to normalcy. The student leaders began to advocate for solidarity with workers, and from the beginning, flyers proclaimed, Long live solidarity between workers and the fighting students. The student union sent an appeal to the major labor unions, calling for a strike in support of the students. And if the unions went on strike, the entire French nation would shut down. From day one, the student radicals were attempting to grind the nation to a halt. No buses or trains would move, a death blow to a country where only 50% of people own cars. Then the student radicals called for a mass demonstration on May 6. It would be one of the bloodiest days of the whole bloody month of May. The fighting started at daybreak. People had bitter strife with their black coffee and buttered croissants. The center of the Latin Quarter looked like Fort Knox. Thousands of police swarmed through the streets, but the leaders of the police made a fatal error. 
They ordered the officers to only guard the area in and around the Sorbonne. The rest of the quarter was open for students to regroup. This is a horrible oversight. Power is the capacity to nullify the enemy. Rioters thrive in large groups. To defeat a riot, you must not allow the group to form in the first place. As Martin van Krevelt noted in an interview in Playboy magazine, strictly enforcing curfew with draconian measures is guaranteed to stop riots because it stops masses of people from even forming. The police let the students reform over and over again, and the riot was thereby constantly refueled. The truth is, if you stop the mass, you ipso facto stop the riot. No cars moving, no people on the streets. Period. Daniel Singer describes the bloody day of May 6th this way, quote, The students crossed the river and marched for a couple of hours through the center of Paris chanting, So bon for the students, down with police oppression! The general public was rather sympathetic. There was occasional applause and there were no boos. But the real test was still to come as the marchers got back to their own side of the river Seine. An ominous silence fell as they approached the street leading to the rear of the Sorbonne. All of a sudden, the police charged with unexpected savagery. Several wounded students lay on the ground, and the mass retreated. The zealous police had little time to savor their triumph. It was their turn to run under a rain of stones. Mad with anger, the students broke up the streets for missiles. Learning from the enemy, they put the cars unlucky enough to be parked nearby in a staggered arrangement to form a kind of castle wall-like barricade. Tear gas could not dislodge them, and the police had to send other troops to threaten them from behind. The students retreated, but predictably regrouped at the Place Maubert. There it was a real battle with charges and countercharges, cobblestones versus grenades. The air was thick with tear gas, yellowish with a bitter and acrid taste. Even the passengers in the subway below were crying from it. The police were bewildered by such stubborn resistance. They had to call for massive reinforcements, and after a couple of hours, they finally managed to conquer the square. They had not quite conquered it, though. The students had vanished. Throughout the Latin Quarter, they were grouped in the South, like the liquid metal Terminator at the end of the film Terminator 2. From all over the place, young men and women rushed to join the rioters. The spot was well chosen. It was near to the Latin Quarter, and the square was vast enough to contain a big crowd. Its numerous outlets provided potential escape routes and were a puzzle for the police who could not guess where the marchers might move. In the middle, there was a statue of the Lion of Belfort. It supplied a platform for men with loudspeakers. And the gathering place was called Place d'Enfer, the square of hell. The demonstrators squealed with glee to find themselves so numerous. They were already several thousand strong and their ranks were still swelling. University students were in a majority, but there were also some young workers, high school students, teachers, as well as a group of professors and lecturers answering their union's call, which had been issued in the heat of the afternoon fighting. Their union had actually asked professors to demonstrate with students saying, quote, we are asking university teachers to take their direct responsibilities, that is, to go out into the streets on the side of their students, end quote. The crowd surged down the tourist sector of the Latin Quarter. The police could not cope. They were armed to the teeth. There was a time when, faced with such a black armada, the students would have turned and run. Now fear was turned into determination, and they ran to embrace their countrymen in the violent dance of the street. Cobblestones and gas grenades flew thick in the air like groups of darting birds. Here, with the help of cars, buses, billboards, railings, torn-off branches, trees, as well as cobblestones, the first serious barricades went up. 
the police were driven to change their tactics. From then on, they tried to avoid direct frontal clashes. The new method was to bomb first and mop up afterwards. The bombing was carried out, preferably from a distance, with grenade throwers. Simple tear gas was soon backed up by more toxic varieties and supplemented by concussion grenades. One minute, a student would be screaming and flicking off a cop. The next second, the world would go black. He would wake up ten minutes later and not know where he was or how he got there. Such is the way concussion grenades share the officer's love for their fellow men. Then, when the mass was broken into small groups, the police would move in with billy clubs, hammering liberty, fraternity, and equality into the heads of the demonstrators slash rioters. The main battle was over by 10 p.m., though sporadic fights lasted well into the night. The official score for Bloody Monday was 422 arrests, 345 policemen wounded, 24 of them taken to the hospital. The casualties among the demonstrators, higher still, could not be calculated and are unknown to this day. But the bloody battle hadn't stopped anything. The demonstrations began again the next day, bright and early, popping back up like whack-a-moles. Tuesday afternoon, 25,000 students gathered at the Place de Infer. The speakers harangued the crowd with utopian calls for a liberation, a liberation that lost an empire and rendered a million Frenchmen homeless, a liberation that produced cratering tax bases for modern France, a liberation that has imploded the French family and produced no-go zones across the suburbs of Paris, but none of the rioters slash demonstrators knew that at the time. The marchers set out with red flags of communism and the black flags of anarchy flapping in the wind. Young, wealthy men who had never worked screamed for socialism, but the marchers were immediately brought to a halt near the Luxembourg Gardens. The verdant garden was heavily guarded by massive trucks and busloads of policemen eager to shine their shoes with student blood. The improvised student stewards holding hands kept the crowd in check and guided it backwards towards the heart of Paris right towards the Arc de Triomphe. Power is in the street, chanted the demonstrators, moving up the Champs-Élysées. The vast and elegant avenue had not witnessed such a parade for decades. Towards 10 p.m., the crowd filled the circular ending to the avenue, the famous Étoile, the pinnacle of wealth in France, called the Star. Red and black flags danced in the wind, spray paint, Desecrated the shrines and buildings the French people had worked to build for the last thousand years. The mass students roared the Communist International around the tomb of the unknown soldier lying beneath the Arc de Triomphe. This was the supreme sacrilege for French patriots, which in days to come would provoke right-wing Frenchmen everywhere. Soft hands, more accustomed to the keys of a typewriter than the sickle or the hammer, called for social justice, whatever that means. Friends, as Alastair McIntyre has definitively demonstrated, there are many justices, many valid and rational and religious definitions of justice. Yours is not the only one. It is better for us to acknowledge that we as citizens in an utterly globalized society filled with hundreds of millions of people will inevitably have different definitions of justice. We should let different conceptions of justice rule for different regions without hate or malice for one another. I can honestly tell you, I don't want what many of you call freedom, but I can see that many of you sincerely believe in a different form of justice than me. Let me have mine and you have yours. We can even compromise between the positions, reach agreements as equals with respect and goodwill. But forcing your conception of justice on me will only promote the same backlash you feel when my conception is forced on you. 
If our marriages can be dissolved so easily, how much easier should it be to dissolve unwanted social relations? The family is much more basic and important than society. Indeed, society is birthed from the family, not the village, not the state. I'll take my family over your simple slogans. And during the Los Angeles riots in the early 90s, I saw the slogan, Burn the Banks, on numerous street corners. Friend, if you burn the banks today, you make the world safe for Chinese and Russian expansion tomorrow. Do you really want to live under the brutal repression of Chinese communism? Ask the millions of minority Ouijers who are locked in concentration camps how much fun it is. I can tell you, China and Russia are watching us, and they are hungry, hungry for the luxury you take for granted. You think it is bad here, but many Russians don't even have private toilets in their homes. They have to share communal bathrooms. Most public housing in America has private toilets. The worst government slums in Georgia have clean running water and private toilets. I've been in some of them. Our poor have a higher standard of living than many people in the third or second most powerful nation on the planet, Russia. And do you really want communal bathrooms? If that's what you want, give it to yourself and leave me alone. In my scope of influence, I will build like the Amish, without malice, without hate, with what Vladimir Jepotinsky called polite indifference. Anyway, after the iconoclastic climax at the Arc de Triomphe, the student demonstrators marched back to their quarter, now turned into a police stronghold. The inevitable clash came that night, but it was nothing like the day before May 6th. A few fires were set, and some people almost died in one burning building, but there was no casualties. However, middle-class public opinion was shifting towards the students. Regular people saw the police repression and had sympathy with the protesters, and so did the workers. Then reports came back to the student leaders. Demonstrations of support were spreading throughout the large cities of France. You could feel a shift in public opinion. Change was in the air. One student leader named Alan Geismar proclaimed on Wednesday morning, whether the police freeze it or doesn't, tonight the sore ball will be ours. It will belong to students and teachers. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Education and the political class busied themselves giving in to student demands. The Minister of Education quacked, if peace is restored, lectures could be resumed at the Sorbonne or at Nanterre as soon as the deans of the faculties think it's possible. That is to say, I hope, by tomorrow afternoon. It was a concession to the students, but the student leaders, meeting in a sort of student congress, rejected it because it did not meet all their demands. Many of the demonstrators were still in jail. The prisoners must be released before classes could resume. The students marched again, this time after working out a deal with police that allowed them to march through the Latin Quarter. The demonstrations continued on a relatively small scale until Friday, May 10th. That's when the next explosion came. This time, the students were joined by intellectuals, high school students, and some radical working class elements. They were already starting to form a wider coalition, but they needed some kind of action right then, right there, that night. The group started on its march through residential areas, calling for regular Parisians to join their ranks. Slowly, the procession made its way back to the Latin Quarter, where the militarized police were waiting for them. The students greeted the cops with Nazi salutes and called them SS soldiers. Then the student leaders realized the police had trapped them. There was no way through the lines of police, and so the radical leaders told the students to occupy the Latin Quarter. The crowd began to build barricades. Within a few hours, there were 50 of them. The barricades were a sign that the students would not yield until their demands were met. 
That's why this night, the night of May 10th, is called the Night of the Barricades. The student barricades proved to have a special appeal to the collective memory of French workers whose grandfathers had fought in the ill-fated commune of 1871. The atmosphere behind the barricades was one of determination and also optimism. In this socialist quarter of Paris, people were coming down with sandwiches and drinks, feeding the people manning the barricade, and as the hours advanced, it was increasingly difficult to believe the troops would even attack at all. But the police were not dithering. They were simply waiting for the higher-ups like good bureaucrats, waiting for President de Gaulle's right-leading centrist ministers to tell them what to do. And after hours of playing flip-the-coin with arguments, the ministers sent the command down to the police, clear out the demonstrators. Several hundred policemen stormed the initial barricades near the gardens. They came on with batons and shields like a Roman battle line. The first barricades came down easily, as did many students in their way. The police truncheons, figuring out how to get a lesson of pain through the students' heads. But further on, the police ran into better-built obstacles, and the officers returned to form, bombing the barricaded students with non-lethal gas and concussion grenades about five thousand grenades were used. Breathing was difficult. Still, the students clung to the barricades. A modern historian picks up the story, quote, A blinding cloud of gas and smoke rose above the first barricade, whose defenders wore handkerchiefs and covered their faces with baking soda. A change of wind and the first wave of police was driven to retreat, suffocated by their own gas. Men's eyes were burned and some were blinded by the constant, ever-lingering clouds of gas. Soon the cops were on the attack again, trying to storm the main barricade. To help the besieged, buckets of water were poured from neighboring windows in the hope of clearing the atmosphere. This did not last because the police started throwing grenades into open windows, giving Granny a concussion grenade along with her nightcap. The wounded, the blinded, those who could not stand it anymore were taken to the rear and replaced by young men rushing up from barricades lying farther back. The first line of defense was not easy to break. The police now attacked from all sides. Cars were burning. The students predictably blamed the police. No one knows for sure who started the fires. Maybe both sides did, end quote. Francois Serruti, a draft dodger from the Algerian War who ran a popular leftist bookstore frequented by Khan Bindi and other radicals, was there on May 10th. This is how he described the events he saw, quote, I was completely surprised by 1968. I had an idea of the revolutionary process, and it was nothing like this, or at least it wasn't supposed to be. I saw students building barricades, but these were people who knew nothing of revolution. They were high school kids. They were not even political. There was no organization, no planning. End quote. A student manning the barricades remembered what it was like that night. Quote, it was the kind of fight that went on all night. The only rest you had was when you escaped the police or avoided arrest. I retreated from a gas attack to another barricade when someone barked, You! Yeah, you! Distribute these leaflets in this section! I walked away with my packet of Maoist truths and stuffed them in a corner. Then I found myself in a studio apartment. A few days later, my hopes for the future overwhelmed me when I found out there were no deaths. Felt good to know no one had died. By 5 a.m., the battle was drawing to an end. Most barricades had fallen. By 6 o'clock, there were still a few pockets of resistance, and Danny Combindi broadcast an appeal to his friends to break off so as to avoid a slaughter. The battle was over. But not the mopping up. The cruel manhunt went on. The police were enjoying their revenge on us. Policemen, rifle or gun in hand, barged into private homes and dragged out refugees who they clubbed into police vans. 
By this time, the prefect of the police was beginning to lose control of his own officers, and he remembered the situation like this. He said in the newspapers, fights would begin, which continued until very late at night and were especially severe, not just because of the number of demonstrators, but because of a degree of violence that was completely surprising and which astonished the police officials. The conflict continued for days, end quote. Now, everything I've just described, the violence, the gassings, the red flags flying through the heart of bourgeois Paris, all of it was taking place while Paris was awash with international news media covering the Vietnam War. Soon the reports were flooding across the world. Repression, violence, protests in the streets of the city of liberty and equality. Here's how one protester described police actions to eager journalists throughout the world. Quote, They lined us up back to the wall, hands over our heads, and they started beating us. One by one we collapsed, but they continued brutally clubbing us. Finally, they stopped and made us stand up, and many of us were covered in blood, end quote. Slogans were painted everywhere, and numerous French commentators loved to quote these. Every Francophone book about this conflict quoted the slogans at length, ad nauseum. They seemed to view it as an expression of the modern mainstream soul or spirit of postmodern France. The slogans are as utopian as the fraternity of man, a sort of revolutionary cat poster. Here's a few of them, quote. Dreams are reality. Quote, I decree a permanent state of happiness. Quote, rape your university. Quote, live, laugh, love. Oh, wait, I got confused by that last one. I read it on your girlfriend's Instagram. My personal favorite slogan was, I don't like to write on walls. Now, that's one I could have written. Again, the books on this conflict are filled with these slogans. The French authors seem to be enamored with building a sort of revolutionary playground notice the themes of the slogans dreams can come true a permanent state of happiness free sex and rape these students wanted to abolish work and strength faith and integrity this actually is a sort of western revolt against christianity and idolatry genesis second states god created man for his own pleasure he delights in those who seek him in quote as c.s lewis noted regarding modern man the Parisian students inverted this. They're saying life and the universe were made for their own pleasure rather than God's. It's a revolt against uniquely Western Christianity, not some universal statement of mankind. Professor Philip Carey of Eastern University makes the same point when he discusses modern liberal theology. It replaces a God-centered orientation to the world with a man-centered one. Anyway, whole books have been written documenting the slogans of May 68. And if you want me to summarize them all, just listen to the song Imagine by John Lennon. Meanwhile, Danny Cohen was all over television, a famous person. Today, he's a wealthy member of the Green Party, raking in sinecures, still making mountains with his tongue. He describes his start like this, quote, I started to realize that I had a special relationship with the media. I am a media product. They just came after me all the time. For a long time, I was the media's darling. Meanwhile, on the weekend after Friday, both sides planned their responses. The student leaders were in contact with worker unions, and on Monday, May 13th, all of the major trade unions called for a general strike. On this day, the nation of France essentially shut down, and it didn't reopen the next day like the trade unions had planned. On May 14th, after the 24-hour general strike, young workers in an airplane factory refused to go back to work. Instead, they occupied the factory workshop, sealed off the plant, and took the plant manager into custody. How's that for a revolt of workers? 
The occupation of a small factory, barely noticed at first, triggered a chain reaction in the following days. The spontaneous strike spilled over to the Renault car factories and from there to other plants. Within just a few days, about 7.5 to 9 million workers were on wildcat strikes without a call from union headquarters. Things were really getting out of control by then. Mark Kurlansky explains, quote, France was shut down. There was no gasoline for cars, and Parisians walked the empty streets. Many around the world thought the elusive goal of students uniting with workers had finally been achieved in France, but it hadn't. The workers did not want revolution. They did not care about students' issues other than to overthrow de Gaulle. They wanted better working conditions, higher salaries, more paid time off, the typical stuff we see since the 1960s from workers, end quote. It was textbook Herbert Marcuse, the working class bought off by air conditioning and bass boats. Marcuse is right, and that is exactly what happened to the working class in the West. Danny Cohn explains, The workers and the students were never really together. They were two autonomous movements. The workers wanted a radical reform of the factory's wages and the like. Students wanted a radical change in life, end quote. I can tell you that radical change the students in Paris fought for is here. It's the divorce rate and the millions of abortions. It's pouting, pampered students up to their eyeballs in debt, already planning how they will protest and complain until their debt is forgiven. And it probably will be. What's that slogan? Oh, I remember. Dreams are reality. At the same time, President General de Gaulle, faced with a nationwide crisis, left for a four-day trip to Romania. This was unbelievable. The Minister of the Interior pleaded with the president not to leave. But de Gaulle went anyway. The next morning, as his country's situation was being reported on the front pages of most major newspapers in the world, de Gaulle declared, This trip is extremely important for French foreign policy and for detente in the world. As far as the student agitation is concerned, we aren't going to accord it more importance than it deserves. End quote. De Gaulle's lackeys offered the striking workers concessions, which the striking workers rejected as too small and so... The strike continued. France remained shut down. And after more days of unrest, the French government deported Danny the Red, who was a German national. And when the students found out about Danny's deportation, the slogan of the student movement became, We are all German Jews now. De Gaulle was flummoxed by the continuing protests and retreated to his country home where he wrote about the situation. Quote, If the French don't see where their own interests lie, too bad for them. The French are tired of a strong state. Basically, this is it. The French remain by nature drawn to factionalism, argumentiveness, impotence. I tried to help them through this. If I have failed, there's nothing more I can do. That's just the way it is, end quote. How's that? From your acting, active president talking about his own people he rules over. On May 24th, de Gaulle called for a referendum on his own leadership. In response, tens of thousands of demonstrators rioted through the streets of Paris and in other large French cities. The students tried to burn down the stock exchange. Hundreds of cars were burned. It's amazing that only three people died during the demonstrations and rioting in May. Two of them died on May 24th, including one among the hundreds wounded in Paris. And there was also a police commissioner in Lyon. Later, a protester chased by police jumped into a river and drowned. Those are the three deaths from this battle. At this point, de Gaulle actually fled the country and went to Germany. Now... People debate whether he fled on purpose, like actually planning to just get out of the country forever, 
or if he was just going to get advice or maybe seek help from a confidant. But whatever the case, we're just not sure. Many thought the government would collapse, and the old president had fled, like I said. But when he returned, he took control of the situation like a boss. The National Assembly dissolved, and new legislative elections were called. The Gaullists, the party of the center-right, would go on to win the elections. Hardly anybody could even believe it. The government came up with a package satisfying all labor demands, including a two-step 35% wage increase for workers. It was more than they had ever hoped for, an instant 35% raise. The unions and workers took it happily, the way you gleefully took your stimulus check. I'm not making fun of you, I cashed mine too. Meanwhile, the Gaullists organized a demonstration on the Champs-Élysées. As a show of support for de Gaulle and traditional values, the public responded. An estimated one million people showed up to march in support of de Gaulle's call for an end to chaos. Hundreds of thousands more than the students and workers who had rioted. If you see the pictures, it's literally the largest demonstration of people I've ever seen in my life. The marchers sang the national anthem as they marched, and at the same time, demonstrations at the University of California, Berkeley, to support French students and oppose de Gaulle turned into two nights of rioting until police enforced a curfew and state of emergency on the entire city of Berkeley, California. Although strikes and student demonstrations continued into June, the student movement gradually lost momentum and de Gaulle's party won a resounding victory in the elections. For almost a thousand years, the pavers in the streets of Paris had served as a tool for rioters in Paris. De Gaulle was the first to solve the problem. In August, he ordered the cobblestone streets of the Latin Quarter paved over with asphalt. We can learn a few things about the student protests. First, they have more style than the silent majority or working class demonstrations. They're genuinely cooler. That's because the silent majority, or silent plurality, depending on your point of view, is filled with people with jobs and families and responsibilities. They're not a bunch of art students writing slogans on walls. The old flag is a good enough slogan for them. Their slogan is the first world nation the stylish protesters take utterly for granted. It's the light switch turning on electricity when you flip it. It's the free pasteurized milk the rioters have drank their entire life throughout their school careers. That's the slogan of the heartland of a free nation. Their slogan is the foundation the protesters think just materialized out of thin air. It came from hard work and hard planning. What was the legacy of May 1968? The wife of Alain Gaismar explains the revolt was a social revolt. And like the student revolt in America during the 1970s and the quiet revolution in Quebec, the revolt was against tradition, the old ways, the church. Ms. Geismar writes, quote, The real sense of 1968 was a tremendous sense of liberation, of freedom, of people talking, talking on the street, in the universities, in the theaters. It was much more than throwing stones. That was just a moment. A whole system of order and authority and tradition was swept aside. Much of the freedom of today began in 68. End quote. I wonder how all the French freedom will end. More than one French writer like Michel Welbeck has predicted it will end with Sharia law. If it does, it was also born in May 1968. Weakness begets more weakness. Just like lies beget more lies. The story I've recounted tonight reminded me of the fable The Fellowship of the Animals 
This is an old fundamentalist folk story from South Georgia. I was told variants of it by my Sunday school teachers and my grandmother, and I still believe it's relevant for today. Quote, The Fellowship of the Animals One day, the king of the rats said to the cat and the dog, The master gives you his scraps and sends you to war against our kind, but he is stingy. He keeps all the best food for himself. I tell you, if we joined together, we could sit at his table and sleep in his bed. His house and his store would be ours if we would but put aside our differences and rise against our oppressive master. The dog and the cat agreed. The cat stood aside and watched as the rats invaded the man's house. The man, whose name was Adam, called the cat to catch the rats, but the cat just watched. Then, in desperation, the man called for the dog, but the dog attacked him instead. And the man's hand was bit and did bleed, and the dog tasted the man's blood. And the man's blood pooled on the luxurious white sheets of the bed, and the rats did drink it and swim in it. They had never tasted such rich ambrosia. Then the man fled and never came back. And that night the animals had more food than they had ever imagined. And though the rats ate more, the dogs and the cat had their share too. Unimaginable luxury, aged, lip-red wine, raw bloody steak, cool milk jars upon jars of it. And the animals did eat, and they were merry, and the children of the ark did play. But the next day, all the food was gone, and the dog and the cat did hunger, and their hunger grew like a honeyed lie, like an evil whisper. And the dog and cat spoke to the rat king, Come, give us more food, give us more sweet wine. But the rat king just smiled. For years you ignored our plight, while the walls of our bellies did grind one against the other. You joined us in our orgy, now join us in our hunger. And the dog and the cat's hearts were most sore and forlorn, for they had never known hunger. They had never known want. And the fellowship of the animals broke apart, and the house fell into ruin. And the cat never felt the soft bed of his master or the soft hand of his master's daughter ever again. There was no one to milk the cow, and so the cow languished in misery, and the cat never drank milk again. And the dog wandered from house to house, begging for scraps from his kinsmen, who rejected him as an outlaw, and his name was Cain, and he was a curse among all dogs everywhere, the first and the last of the turncoats, inconstant as fair weather, a perpetual twilight or dusk, never clear sun or day. And the rats went to another house, and they gathered another cat and another dog. And the king of the rats said, The master gives you his scraps and sends you to war against our kind, but he is stingy. And the dog and the cat did listen and did nod their heads. And the stars and the mountains and the sun did see their revolt against their nature and did weep in their hearts.